0: Welcome to HBTV. I'm Harry Binswanger, the HB in HBTV. I'm a philosopher who advocates Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. Today, I'm on location and on my laptop. I'm in LA, and unfortunately, I cannot take my green screen, my expensive microphone, my expensive camera. So the this is the best video and audio I can come up with while I'm traveling. Hope that it is acceptable in your sight. First question today is Ask Harry Anything. First question, Baker, could you list a few of Ayn Rand's favorite performers in the arts, e.g., well, I should read that with a different emphasis. Could you list a few of Ayn Rand's favorite performers in the arts, e.g. musicians, dancers, actors, as opposed to composers, directors, movies, etc., and what she liked about them? Yes, I can. Uh, and let's take them up in the order you raised them. Musicians, although... Um, I don't, I never talked with her about this. It's clear that she liked Horowitz on piano and who wouldn't? It's clear because there's a wonderful little section in one of her plays, Think Twice, where uh, when the villain hears piano music and says, across the uh, several rooms to the uh, source of the sound. Why don't you put on Horowitz? He plays that so much better than you do. And the answer comes back, that was Horowitz. Which is tremendous because it it shows that the villain was... uh, not actually finding any difference between Horowitz and the hero's piano playing, but was just attacking him uh, through that statement. So I know that she liked Horowitz. I heard from a colleague that uh, for Rachmaninoff's Second Piano Concerto, she liked a pianist named Malkuszynski. And... um, I'm sure she liked, uh, I mean, I infer or guess that she liked Arthur Rubinstein, but I don't know that. So the only, uh, oh yes, I know uh, one more interesting story. There's a little known pianist named Irvin, I think it's Irvin Nierjahazi which is a Hungarian name, Nyer Gerhazi. I think it's N-Y-I-R it begins. He went, in fact, on strike. Uh, He was a child prodigy and a young phenomenon. And then he didn't play for about 30 years. Didn't even play at home. Didn't practice. And he was rediscovered in the 70s uh, and was recorded playing just in a, uh, a church that happened to have a good piano, playing some List, List being his favorite. And you can hear the records or the CDs, they're fantastic. And I asked Ayn Rand about it, and she, uh, if she'd ever heard of him, she said, Yes, I was at a benefit that was given to raise money for him when I was in Hollywood. I I take it it was in the uh, 40s after the Fountainhead, before she came back to New York. And uh, she thought he was fantastic. And I don't recall if she gave money. I think she probably did. So Nier Jahazi is another pianist she liked. Dancers, um, she liked um,
1: Nureyev. Again, who doesn't? Oh, I'll tell you an interesting story. Actors, uh, Greta Garbo,
0: I think would be her number two. Her number one would be someone that unless you follow Ayn Rand's personal life as revealed later, have never heard of, Hans Gudegast. Hans Gudegast. Now he's been known... Lately, I mean, the last 20 years as Eric Braden, he changed his name. And you can see him on a soap opera, but she fell in love with him for the character he played and the way he played it on The Rat Patrol, which was a show from 67, 68, I think two seasons. And I used to watch that with her. She thought he would be the actor to play Francisco, uh, maybe even Galt, from the way he played Captain Hans Dietrich, a German uh, commander of a tank uh, group in North Africa who's uh, constantly fighting the hero who's an American, Christopher George played him. And the Rap Patrol series is kind of good So she kept, she made video cassettes. She bought a videotape recorder at a time when video cassette recorder, when almost no one had them. I had one. So I helped her write down the instructions to do a timed recording of the show. She wrote on the back, on the sleeve, you know, an effect of the cassette, a grade from A to F. The grade was based exclusively on how much Hans Gudegast there was in
1: the episode and how well he was showcased. And I must say that he is a
0: fantastic actor and character uh, in that um, episode. He's now quite a, you know, I mean, he's in his 70s or 80s and he's on a soap opera and he's got a mustache. And he no longer has that European air. So you can't get an um, idea. You have to watch the old episodes of the Rat Patrol if you want to see what uh, she uh, became infatuated with him in effect and said, now I have a reason to write a screenplay for Atlas Shrugged to save his career. Because she knew that he had gone to the soap operas and she knew that his genius was not being recognized. And she said to be able to play a hero the way he does, even though it's a villain hero in the Rap Patrol, uh, he must have some of that in his soul. So she saw herself as rescuing. This was after Frank O'Connor, her husband of 50 years, had died. And she was very lonely. And she discovered him. And she said it was like the sun coming out again. So that would be number one. And there was um, uh, Ralph Richardson, I think.
1: So Ralph Richardson, an English actor um, that I believe she liked. So uh, there are other minor ones. She did not
0: think that Gary Cooper could act the role of Howard Roar. She thought he had the right face for Rourke, but he couldn't project the intelligence of Rourke and the um, the things that made Rourke a nine-rand hero. He couldn't really act it, and if you listen to the Fountainhead, you, you know it's very plain uh, what she thought. Incidentally, a friend of mine asked her when I and her went to her apartment for a social evening, said when Atlas Shrugged was hopefully going to be made into a miniseries and movie, the friend said, if you had to choose between an actor who could play the part of one of your heroes, but didn't look it, or an actor, you know, like Gary Cooper, who looked the part
1: but couldn't play it, which would you choose? She said, that's what tortures me. She didn't have an answer. Dancers, I covered you up. So actors, okay.
0: Uh, and, what, and what she liked about them. Well, I think it's self-evident, except in the case of Hans gudekast I mean, Horowitz is clearly... Incredibly romantic, dramatic, interpretive, skilled. But if we're going to uh, pianist, near near Jahazi, you can hear he's
1: unbelievably powerful at the piano keyboard. Uh, Nurayev, I went to
0: Swan Lake. I'm not a balletophile. It's okay, but it's not my form. But I went to see Swan Lake with uh, Nureyev in it because I wanted to see that. For the first, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, he is playing the role of the prince and he was sitting on the right side, on his throne, on the right
1: side of the stage, audience's right, motionless, in a chair. And you
0: could not look at anything but him. There was dancing going on in the center of the stage and activity on the left. You could not take your
1: eyes off. He had such a commanding presence that he dominated everything. All right. uh, Let's go on. Theme master, somebody's handle. Is there anything
0: philosophical to say about tattoos? Uh, Not exactly. Uh, I'm against them. I don't think you should use your body as a billboard. Uh, Should the human body be kept as it is? Yeah, unless there's something
1: that needs fixing up in it. Uh, tattoos are, uh, in my view, what, 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 what that a desecration of the human body, but not a
0: really big one. And as they become more and more common, you kind of get inured to them. But no, I, I don't, it's not a philosophical principle there's no philosophical principle you could call on them and say well the human body is a beautiful thing it's adapted to its function why do that but then you that argument is rationalistic then you shouldn't wear earrings or makeup or something that's you can't make that argument but as a as
1: a individual user of philosophy not speaking as a philosopher I don't like them Jose
0: Gainza asked, what would a hypothetical novel by H.B. Me be about? Well, I never considered doing a novel, but I tried to write some short stories. I'd be happy to tell you about them. One of them was called The Leprechaun Solution. And it was about a man who worked in a bank who fell in love with one of the customers. A woman uh, who was em- had emigrated from Irish. She was an Irish redhead, and it's told from the man's point of view that you know how he feels when she walks into the bank, and how his attention is riveted on her, and how he he learns that she's married, he tries to think of a way he could meet her, and should he do it because he's, she's married, and it turns out, I forget whether he learns this or not, I guess he does, she married somebody to get into the country, you know, against the immigration laws, so it was a marriage of convenience, as they call it, and the guy who, um,
1: she married, it turns out to be a bad guy. So he's thinking about what he's going to do. The, the guy who works in the bank works as a computer programmer.
0: He's thinking about what he's going to do, how he can,
1: you know, win her away and keep her in the country and so forth. And meanwhile, there's a bank robber. now, The complications ensue, but I'll just tell you what he does in the bank robbery. The bank robbers, the police come,
0: the bank robbers are taking hostages, and they look at the redhead. Our hero grabs some handcuffs from a, there's a bank guard there who's old and feeble and has no weapon. He reaches in and gets the handcuffs from the pocket of the the bank guard. And he handcuffs himself very quickly to the girl and says, if you uh, take her, you've got to take me too. And complications ensue. Uh, I won't tell you why it's called the leprechaun solution. I haven't gotten to that whole aspect of it. So I tried to write this. And what I learned is it's very hard to write fiction, very hard. Philosophy is easy compared to it. And I thought it was pretty much a failure. It was very hard to get a plot, a plot that made sense and worked and did what I wanted to do, because the hero uh, does come up with a solution, too, to her immigration problem and the bank robbery and so forth. Uh, and it's pretty clever, but it took a lot of time and effort. And then in the actual writing, everything came out as bromides, everything came out as cliche. Uh, I was very surprised at that because I work with words, but it was hard to not write in cliches. So that I never thought of a novel, but I had enough difficulties trying to do a short story, which I never actually completed. Shazbot says, it, if you were admiring your favorite painting in a museum and an activist were preparing to vandalize the painting, would you try to stop him or would you record him with your phone? Well, that's not a question you can draw a principle with. If I were big and young and uh, he wasn't armed, uh, I would try to stop him. I would say uh, morally, not legally or politically, morally, someone who wants to vandalize a great work of art does not deserve to live. There was a vandal. I mean he may, he's probably mentally impaired. So if it's not if so, it's not a moral impaired is not the right. He's probably certifiably insane. And in that case, it's not a moral issue. You should just be stopped and put in an institution. Uh, Some years ago, a vandal attacked the Pieta of Michelangelo in um, the Sistine Chapel.
1: No, not the Sistine, sorry. In St. Peter's in Rome. And they were able to repair it but
0: he did do damage and since then you can't get close to that statue i saw it before this event and you could walk right up to it and people were touching it and worn away a a spot on uh, mary's big toe i think because everyone touched it there to you know say i touched it That's a kind of mini act of vandalism. So if the person does it and is sane, he doesn't deserve to live. Now, I would not condemn him to death or anything. But if I could stop him by shooting, I would gladly do that. Uh, Michael asks, why do you say life is easy? Most people in today's mixed economy hate their jobs and don't have easy lives.
1: Did I say life is easy? I I do feel that. Um, Because I'm not most people. You have to, if you hate your job, you have to think of a solution to that. And it's It's not that hard. It's not as hard as writing a short story that works.
0: Um, Yeah, today's mixed economy makes it much more difficult. But what I'm opposing is the metaphysical, not the current cultural condition, but the metaphysical attitude. Oh, life's so hard. Life sucks. I have to be in reality. Reality is rigged, a friend of mine said. The malevolent
1: universe premise, Ayn Rand called it. I I do not relate to that. Most people in today's mixed economy hate their jobs and don't have
0: easy lives. Well, we all have easy lives compared to someone a 1,000 years ago, compared to most of humanity throughout history. We have incredibly easy uh, life. We don't have to worry where our next meal is coming from. When it rains, we have shelter. Uh, You're putting a question for someone that you're interested in who maybe thousands of miles away and getting an answer. Technology has made life easy, and philosophy makes the problems of life easy. Most of the problems that make people despair are due to bad philosophy. If they live in a free or semi-free economy, if you live in a dictatorship, you have to get out. You have to find a way. That's your problem. How do I escape? But if you're talking about people in the UK, the United States, Europe, um, what they call the first world countries, uh, if you have big problems that are not health problems, that's a hard thing. It's because you've adopted some contradictory set of ideas. And if things become pretty simple, if you have a rational philosophy and do not attra- attempt to live by contradictions, like altruism, which is one solid contradiction, or religion, which contra- is a second solid contradiction. Kurt asks, do you think the field of music today is an especially convenient medium for degrading the culture? I think, and I don't know if I'm right, that people under the age of about 40 don't even understand music anymore, emotionally, personal. So uh, I don't think it degrades the culture anymore because I don't think it has the impact that it once did. It's now just rhythm.
1: Um, Harmony is gone, melody is gone. And all you have is rhythm. Equal to reality
0: is the handle on the next for the next. Is playing video games like Mortal Kombat or GTA immoral? Well, I don't know either one of those, but if the question is
1: really about what about violent games? Is playing them immoral? No. What about sick games? You know, where are you? I mean, you make up the script.
0: No. It's not immoral to play any video game. The only thing that's immoral is either blanking out your mind or acting upon, you know, to violate the rights of others to do something unjust to others. But this comes under the general heading of um, is it immoral to think certain thoughts or to experience certain emotions or to have certain fantasy? No, morality is not concerned with censoring you. It's not concerned with prohibiting this and prohibiting that. It's telling you how to achieve your happiness. And it tells you essentially one thing. Think. Think. Turn on your mind and focus. Now, if you can make up a video game where you have to blank out, where you have to evade to take part in it by your own sense of what you're doing with your mind, yeah, then it'll be immoral to do that. But violence in games is not a problem at all. I don't, you know, I go to the movies very violent movies. I mean, I have them. I don't seek them out and I don't particularly go to movies anymore. But if somebody says, oh, don't go to this one because people get their heads lopped off. And so I don't mind that at all. Uh, it's a way of concretizing drama and value conflicts. Um, and I don't believe that people get conditioned to vo- be violent in reality because they play violent video games. Everybody knows that a video game is not real. So no, I'm on the other side of that. I'm, I'm say fair, and uh, I think a, I have a full, full philosophy to back me up there. Um, given that Freudians and behaviors are both anti-minds, Daniel was asking, and variants of the social primacy of consciousness. That's a lot to take in as given for people who don't know objectivism well. Have you ever heard of anyone in the field of psychology
1: influenced by both Freud and Skinner? Probably. Um, People try to combine contraries all the time, they're not really contradictories,
0: they're variants on the same. Don't don't worry about thinking axis. Um Skinnerian, Freudian. Nothing comes to mind now, but I wouldn't at all be surprised if there is someone. Uh the the origin of the question is this. Freud sees man as uh a, a, a Raving beast with emotions that drive him and urgency can't control. Behaviors say no, uh, man doesn't have a mind. He's a computer, he's a robot. So, can you be both? Say that man's driven by emotions and he has no mind. Not logically, but I bet there are people out there trying to do it. I don't find that an interesting question. Michael says, could you do a show on the war on drugs and what drug legalization would look like? Yeah, I can do what it would look like. It would look like buying meat at the supermarket. We don't need a show on that. We know what an open market is. So on one aisle, I don't know if supermarkets would want to carry it, but in principle they could. There would be steak, and on another aisle, there would be aspirin and cocaine and heroin and marijuana and crack,
1: whatever else. And it would sell for, you know, about the same as aspirin. Uh, Now, maybe more responsible uh, uh, supermarkets wouldn't want to
0: sell those things, but uh, that's what it would look like in principle. Uh, drug, illegal, what the war on drugs, could I do a show on that? Probably it takes some thinking, but I'm constantly impressed by how the war on drugs has so many side consequences, really far flung, like in international relations and the rule of law and whether you can have law and order in society, and it's just incredibly bad to have drugs be illegal. Um, Would you, uh, Daniel, as would you consider doing an episode of HBTV discussing the main epistemological errors of Mises'
1: praxeology? Yes, I think that's a good idea. Henry, asks
0: would you classify critical race theory D or M as per Dr. Peacock's D I M terminology? Thank you. I could make a stab at it, but I'm I'm not uh one who uses that um
1: uh trichotomy uh, critical race theory is determinist
0: and it's intrinsicist so it would be on the um, M misintegrated, but the bad, you know he has two levels of the really bad one. It's like religion in that regard. But critical race theory is, is not the theory well do your own thing. it doesn't matter. there are no standards. It says there's there are things that are evil and you can't help if you're right from being one of the evil people. And if you're black, you're a victim. So it's a form of int- what we call intrinsicism, the idea that uh, things are good or bad, true or false, independent of the mind of anyone, independent of what they chose to do, their thinking, their choice of values, just because of some physical condition of reality. Equal to reality As I have a relative who was a Marxist professor, 60s. Now, I don't know if you mean he's in his 60s or he came out of the 1960s. I'm having trouble fully
1: letting go as I don't want to be associated with them. Any advice? No, I, I, don't, I don't have advice. Uh, because it's too individualized,
0: and I, I would have to ask you a lot of questions uh, about, you know, how old are you? What, what do you mean by sixties and etc. But if a, I will say this, and which you probably already realize, if you have a relative who's a Marxist professor, he's gone intellectually. You know, he's not going to change his mind no matter what happens anywhere. In reality, in argumentation, in reading, he's not going to change his mind. Ginger Clark, did Ayn Rand have a cat after her husband died? Well, she had, yes, she had the um, ones, she had more than one cat. She had ones that she had had from when um, Frank was alive. And I'm trying to think now she got one from, um, uh, what's his name, that was going to do Atlas until he chickened out as a miniseries. The guy who did The Godfather. What What is his name? Uh, there, he was going to do, he, he came to Ayn Rand bearing a gift, a cat. He had his name was Angel, and it was a long hair Siamese, beautiful cat. And then she got one of Leonard Peikoff's cats after he, I think, um, his wife was allergic to them. Uh, and did she have another at that point? I forget, she had at least two. Um, yes, so she did. Her her love of cats never changed. And I brought my cat over to her apartment. Which she really enjoyed, you know, when I visited. Michael asked, does a rational man who has achieved inner peace not fear death? Do you not fear death? Did Ayn Rand not fear death? Uh, I would say, no, they don't. Ayn Rand did not fear death. Uh I'm not going to speak about myself, but uh, she didn't. And um, I think the issue is, I was told by a then-objectivist psychologist or psychotherapist, the issue is, have you lived? If you feel that you've lived a life, you don't fear, and you know that death is just going out of existence, then you don't fear death. Ayn Rand said that she liked the saying of some Greek philosopher, she doesn't know which one, who said, it's not
1: I who will die. It's the universe that will go out of existence. And I said to her,
0: but that's not right. And she said, I know, but uh, and she said on, on I think on um, Donahue showed this quote so it's not just to me but I said but that's not right um, to me uh, that is frightening that way of looking at it because you could be somehow conscious I mean you can't philosophically with nothing to be conscious of but the, the bad part of if you fear death, the bad part of it is thinking, well, I will be in existence as a mind, but everything will be black forever. I like the Greek philosopher who said,
1: where death is, I am not. Where I am, death is not. Seven question. but has already been a half an hour. Let's see what the next one is.
0: Um, next one's a little long. So let's stop here and we'll have another session uh, either next week or the week following. And we'll have one on Milton, not Milton, that was the next question, on Ludwig von Mises, uh, the first 99 pages of human action in effect. Until then, goodbye. Thank you for tuning in.